0: Welcome to Agency Exits, I'm Raj Jha. In this episode, we have Massimo Zufrino, who is a fantastic guest and we're going to learn all about how he journeyed from starting his agency all the way until selling it and a lot of the lessons learned along the way. We talk about building culture in your agency in a way that makes the agency a place where you actually really enjoy coming to work and your work is much more effective. We talk about some software that he built that actually really helped in his acquisition and actually even though they weren't software developers, they're a design house, they figured out a way to use this software to go really deep with the client and actually make the engagements super, super sticky. So you're going to want to learn about that. And we also learned about how they increase client success. So we had a really detailed discussion about some of the things agencies can do to make sure their clients win and really cement that relationship so that the churn goes down. There's so, so many great lessons in this interview. So jump right in and join me with Massimo on this episode of agency exits. Welcome to Agency Exits, where you're going to see behind the scenes with agency founders who have built and sold their agencies. Today, I'm here with Massimo Zafrino.
1: Welcome, Massimo. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks for being. I'm I'm happy to be here. Yeah. It's so weird being on the other side for me. (laughs) Exactly. I
0: noticed that I will not be nearly as cool as your podcast because I know that you do whiskey (laughs) tastings. And now yeah, I'm feeling yeah, like remiss. Yeah. I just have coffee. I, it's just not nearly as huh. I'm not cool enough for you.
1: You know what? We also throw in an F bomb or two. So just throw the throw yeah. that in there and then you
0: Okay. Sure. <laughs> Fan fucking tastic. That's exactly what we're gonna do.
1: <laughs> see? Already.
0: Exactly. There you go. You've brought it you've brought it to exactly your zone here. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm just aspiring right. to be as cool. I mean, you see, like I'm just an old guy. I'm a do Oh get
1: out of here. Too.
0: But anyway. It's just, uh, <laughs> Good. You and I have a, had a chance to talk a little bit, but I'd love to share for people a little bit about your journey. Maybe we can start out by just what inspired you to start an agency in the first place? And we'll take yeah, it from there. Yeah.
1: I'm one of those few people that I was fortunate enough to always know what I wanted to do, right? At a really young age, I was always a tinkerer. I would take things apart. I could never put them back together. But I always took them apart. I played with Lego. I used to draw. Like my parents said, at seven, eight years old, they would go into my bedroom at like midnight when they thought I'd be sleeping and I'd be there with the light on just drawing, right? And and it was after watching an episode of Who's the Boss. I'm sure you remember Who's the Boss, right? Of course, yes. And Angela Bauer was there and she was presenting a pitch to somebody. And I was like, you know what? I want to do that. I saw the creativity. She came up with the ideas, this, that. She pitched it. And so I was like, 13 years old when I was like, I want to do that, but I had no idea how the hell to do this. Because here I was like, didn't know how the industry worked. Didn't even know. All I knew is that she was in advertising. And then when I went to high school, my first year of high school, I, I, because I was into art and everything, I chose a high school that had a lot of different art opportunities, art subjects, right? One of them was, it had three years of graphic design. And, and just my first year into graphic design, I just, I was all in. I was all of a sudden my doodles changed from like little characters to little ads. Instead of drawing like little pickups here or, or ornaments there, I was drawing logos. I was just making stuff up, right? And then it was the end of my first year and I think I ended up getting like a 96 in the course. I'd never had anything like that. I was just right. like cuz up until then I was a solid B student, maybe well, even to C, audience, it. Yes, exactly. But but this I excelled. It was incredible. And then the teacher afterwards, she was extremely inspiring. She said, "You know what?" You told me you want to own an advertising agency. This is how you're going to get there. She's you've got a skill. You, you know how to put things together. You're creative. You can get there by being a graphic designer. And so that was perfect. So it was literally from grade nine, first semester of grade nine on every single job I took, every single decision I made, I always knew I was going to own an agency one day. And then it actually it was more like I was like 15 years. It was a year after being in a graphic design my girlfriend, my first girlfriend, right? Her father sat us down one day and gave us a piece of paper and uh, the classic thing, write down a goal for the next 10 years. Okay. Something for 10 years. So he said that and instantly, first thing in my mind, 10 years, I'm going to own an advertising agency. Here I am, 15 years old, naive. I knew it, graphic design. I knew that I was how I was going to get there. And I was like, so every decision from that point on was taking me closer to that goal. And I remember that, right? It's as a, 16-year-old kid, I was going to go look for a part-time job, but I'm like, I can go wash dishes, which is going to do nothing. Or I can go take a retail job and learn how to sell. And then I was like 18 years old. And before college, I decided to go work at a little photocopy place, right? So I learned how print worked, right? And then I went to college and then even all, everything I took in there, I just, every decision I made was to take me to that point. And then of course I went to college for graphic design, struggled, not because of the course, but because The profs there were so different than they were when they're trying to teach you design. It's very restrictive here. I had already had three, four years of freelance business as a teenager. And granted, I probably sucked, right? But (laughs) I was making, I I was doing it. And so here I left high school. I was already on a computer. I already knew the future, where the future was going. And these guys were like telling me to pump the brakes and and pull back. And I was just like, I can't because I'm on a mission. I got to get there. And uh, it was the best thing that could have happened. So it was after my first year of graphic design, teacher told me straight up, "You're never going to make it in this industry with this attitude." It's just like what a horrible thing to tell anybody, <laughs> it's especially it's somebody like majoring in I was mean, like, "Yeah, exactly." It's like, right? Because I was just like, that <laughs> "Yeah."
0: That's
1: it. Now you're all screwed. So right. I, um, I, so then that was my mission. So I jumped out of that course, and then there was a second course called advertising and design, and that was the course I should have been in from the start. I was always a passionate designer, but I didn't know how the rest of that world worked. And this course taught me everything else. It taught me marketing fundamentals, taught me about media sales and how to place buys. And then it gave me the bigger picture, which is what was lacking. And it was the best thing they could have done. So I was still a passionate designer. I was still going to learn how to do everything I wanted to do. I was just, that was just in me to be a graphic designer. But that advertising and design course made all the difference. And then that is what then took me out. I finished that, graduated that one. Thank God, <laughs> didn't have any issues with anybody in that course. <laughs> exactly. um, but I remember. So then I started my agency about a year after college. Wow, just straight, opportunity straight through to the agency.
0: You pretty you much are right. Not I did an co-op. accidental agency owner like it, so. It many. was I no. Think. I was just, yeah, I was, yeah. psh,
1: and I knew that, and uh, and it was great because then it was probably about year seven or eight of owning my business. I remember going back I was asked to come back to the college to teach and sure enough I was taking the elevator and in comes that specific teacher who was like you're never going to make it and I remember looking yeah. at him and I was just like do you remember me and he was like no I'm sorry I didn't and it just you have like a million thoughts of what you could right. do and uh, you know what I didn't say anything I just right. smirked and I was like it's enough like that just it's showed like, it and that's and matters. that's it and right. that was it and i felt like after of course i, I must have <laughs> ruminated over that one for like years <laughs> exactly. after i
0: should have <laughs> said <should've.
1: laughs> but you know what it was it was just the fact that it was like it was a perfect circle cuz here it yeah. was this unfortunately somebody who was supposed to be inspiring and uh, and they totally weren't and that's okay maybe i was a lot more stubborn as a young kid maybe he maybe they were right i don't know but you never tell somebody that yeah. so he had that high school be...
0: experience going into college which was which, right he's got you on the right path so you could right. just look past that an analogy to anything else that might come along in your agency career where people are going to tell you can't do it, et cetera. So, you know, that happening to you, like you said, best thing for multiple reasons, but it's also building that resilience of no doubt. We'll talk about some of the not so great things that happened during the journey as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the best things that could have happened. And I realized that I always preferred being the underdog. And still to this day, I still always do. I'm always rooting for the underdog. I always loved that whole David versus Goliath story. And it felt like it's just, I've just, everything from my business to our podcast to even my schooling was exactly that. Yeah. So so it's been 25 years later and kind of loving the journey. I'm not going to lie. It's been fun.
0: You found your call. So tell me about, so you start the agency and before we get to the, what happened when you actually sold it, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that happened en route to there. As you're building a team, as you're building clients, some of the discoveries that you made along the way that that were really key points in that journey.
1: Yeah. So there was so many, like so many, I've had so many lessons learned. I had no idea the hardest parts of a business. Number one, I, a mistake number one that I tell everybody that gets some sort of knowledge on is I took every possible, every job I took, everything this, that, this, that took me to be a better marketer, designer, creative person, but I never learned any practical business, anything. I So that was the part that I struggled with most. The design, the creative, coming up with campaigns, that came natural. I was passionate about that. I absorbed it everywhere and anywhere I went. But the part that I struggled, of course, was the practical business knowledge. I didn't have any. It, I had parents that, that worked hard all their life, but and they taught me how to be resourceful, how to persevere, but they didn't have practical business knowledge either. And it was at a time where nobody wanted to share secrets. Like this is before the internet. I love the mm-hmm. world right now that we're living in because just like we're doing what you're doing. We're putting it all out there. We're helping anybody who wants to know how to do things. But 25 years ago, everybody felt like the world was so small and everybody was after everybody's pop. I mean, that wasn't the case, right. but it's just nobody wanted to give you good advice. And I couldn't find a mentor because we were in a town where there wasn't that many agencies. Actually, there was like 34 of them at the time, but of those 34, only two exist. And we're one of those two. So <laughs> should have shared some of your yeah. information there. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe it's a good thing I didn't get advice from these people. But uh, so the practical business knowledge, huge. I, that's something that I struggled, with. And even today, like even to date, while I got much better at the business side, another thing I struggled with, employees, the employee side is always challenging. And mm-hmm. man, that's always changing. So in the end, it's as a manager, I'm not a good manager because I, I'm i of that mentality. We're all adults. You shouldn't, I shouldn't have to babysit you. If you don't want to be here, then just don't be here. If you don't want to work in a team, just, so I take a very, it's a very different if we run very flat, our right. agency wasn't huge by any means. When we were acquired, we were 12 people, but we still ran very flat right? And there was a point where we got to 15. It was very flat, but I think that was probably as large as you (laughs) can get. breaking point at
0: some point where...
1: And I think that was the breaking point because I was losing my mind at that point. But so I never wanted to be thought of as a manager. I wanted just... I was a creative leader. That's what I was, creative director. Look at me for inspiration, for advice, but don't look at me to do things where you guys should be solving it yourself. So I took a different approach to that and it worked. It possibly held us back size-wise, but the problem is it's not a problem because I always wanted that small, nimble mm-hmm. shot. I didn't want to have a giant agency. I saw the flaws because I've worked with a lot of giant agencies. I had a lot of friends who worked for them and it's just, they were slow to react. Um, they were slow to move. They were slow getting back to their customers where we prided ourselves and still do as being nimble, being quick and being able to turn things around in ungodly like time spans. It's incredible. Just what we do, what we built and, uh, and it's part of the culture. So man, Tell me more
0: yeah. about, so you said it's changed. How mm-hmm. team members work over time, has it changed more based on the size of your agency growing? kind of the culture of work? What's changed over that time? For you know team what it's just like being over, a boss
1: over, over the past twenty five years, I think everybody can like there's been such a, the generations that kind of come through have different work ethics, and that's been a hard one to navigate because I know what I do. And my attitude is that's just work. i'm I'm just a hard worker. I appreciate people who work hard. And for the ones who like dodging things or dicking around or high or whatever, it's just it. Uh, you always see those people, and you know that they're not right. going to last, and they never did. Ultimately, I always, I I always appreciated people who were working hard, even if their skills were lacking, because if they have that mm-hmm. ambition, if they're hardworking, they'll pick up anything. I hired, I hired a girl a few years back straight from college. Mm-hmm. She just wanted it all. And she said she wanted it all. And she was a hard worker. And she's now my right-hand person here. I trust her with everything. And I mean, she's not even, she's not even 30, which is incredible, right? Yeah. And I have yeah. hired other people that are more experienced, but they were more laggards. They were yeah. comfortable. They just wanted to come in, do their job and leave. And we don't promote by any means working over 5, 530. Like we, we put in a good, solid, good, solid eight hours. I don't want people to, and again... <laughs> That's part of this culture, right? We're very much a get shit done type agency. And I I tell everybody the same thing. We work hard between the hours of nine and five, so we don't have to afterwards. Exactly. Where a lot of agencies, they push their people to work 12 hours a day, but they're not efficient. And that's, I think, one... That's a huge difference, I think, between us and a lot of shops. Because... it's
0: hiring a lot for culture and for motivation. Absolutely. Uh, I remember one of the best employees I ever had, he... Never finished college. He yep. came to work and do video work for us. But his work was amazing. And mm-hmm. he was the most dedicated guy. And I never asked anybody to work nights or weekends, but Absolutely. he would be. And mm-hmm. I was like, Sean, stop. You don't have Relax. to do this. But was like, Go. I want to do
1: this. And I was like, okay. Absolutely. <laughs> <You> know, great. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And again, that's, I think culture is such, culture is a hard thing to establish if people don't understand it themselves. Right. Right from the beginning, I knew the kind of shop I wanted. I wanted a shop that embraced creativity right? You didn't just claim to have a creative environment and just cool colored walls and like a ping pong table or something like that. You could have the elements, but if you're not living and breathing that culture, that, that the environment is nothing in the end. It's a facade yeah. where we absolutely, we live, we breathe creativity, we live and breathe family. We're all very a tight unit where we all have each other's backs. And when you start growing that kind of culture, then it's just very organic. How it just, the people that you bring into this space The ones that don't fit in don't last like on their own. I've had somebody bounce after two weeks because they're like, you know what? You get, this isn't the kind of place. They wanted the experience. They wanted the 12 hours and they wanted to hang out and chum around with everybody. And don't get me wrong. We have a really great time here. We duck out early on Fridays. We do whiskey tasting. We're constant. A team does, and I try to catch up to them, but they do lunchtime walks every lunch. They go for a three kilometer walk, right? And they go and they chat and this and that. We definitely, we embrace... More the family culture, we embrace creativity and the work hard ethic is just, it's second to none in my opinion.
0: So help me dig into that a little bit, because I think when I was growing an agency, I didn't understand. I heard so many people say that you have to, culture is important. But as a very left brain person, it was hard Mm -hmm. for me to implement it. What do I need to do that? So how did you make it real in your team?
1: So this is going to sound really selfish. I tried for years putting on the boss hats and being the boss that you read that you're supposed to do with better management, better this, better that. And it never worked because I was never being authentic, right? Plain and simple. And I figured that if I was going to lead this shop, I had a vision of what I wanted the shop to be. And if, if I was going to lead it, I had to lead it, right? And basically, people. I bring on people. They saw my attitude, my hiring. One of the hiring criteria was, would I have a beer with this person? Would I actually want to hang out with them? And so what happened is I started building the shop that I wanted, that had my personal beliefs, that had my mantras, that had my ethos. And and then somebody else would join and be like, you know what? I love that. Let me add to that. Then a second person would jump aboard, be like, you know what? I love that idea too. I want to be part of this threesome. The threesome grew to five, which grew to seven, which because everybody embraced the same belief and the ones that didn't, the ones that came and we've hired some and i warned them, like we're pretty casual shops where they would come in and they want to dress up like they were like on a Mad runway. Men. Yeah. And it was just like, dude, I don't know if this is the culture for you. Cause right. and again, and it wasn't, they, they bounced yeah. after a short periods. It was yeah. the record one after two weeks. She was like, you know what? You guys are cool, but I can't do this. This yeah, isn't like, what I'm not cool I was looking for, for. And that's in my attitude. Maybe she <laughs> right. thought differently, but. So I think the way I built culture, I, and again, it sounds like totally self-serving and I don't mean it to be, um, but again, I had a vision and I stopped trying to be what everybody was telling me I should be. And I just ran with my vision and the people who wanted to follow just came and was just, it was like, I really believe in that whole power, the secret of the universe, the power of the universe. You put it out there, it'll come back to you. So I put out this vibe, you know, we're a little different, we're a little bit more edgy, we're a little bit more, we're all a bunch of pop culture nerds. We all have fun. We all have, we had Game of Thrones meetings after (laughs) every episode or House of Dragons or or whatever we were following, whatever the hot show was. And the next morning we'd have a meeting, we'd have an official meeting where we would all just get together and just talk about it. And that was the culture that we built. And I think that's why everybody here, there's like a general genuine family type environment because mm-hmm. of that so well, I, so I that's again that's there's no secret to culture in my opinion it's be authentic but it has to start from the top and if somebody at the top is really harsh really strict really working 20 hours a day and watching every penny and they have this look that they want to portray oh that's sadly the type of people that they're going to probably attract and that's ugh, i couldn't imagine i, that environment.
0: I think what the, a lot of owners don't realize or don't think about it that the agency is a vehicle for themselves, yeah. whether it's a financial um, vehicle or a life vehicle. Yep. And you get to build the vehicle that you want to be in. And I don't I did not have the same freewheeling environment as you, but I'm also probably more introverted than most and probably mm-hmm. more left brained than most. But I attracted those kinds of people who those wanted to talk who wanted to nerd out on, yes. on marketing. And right. I love those conversations. Being at the whiteboard and just covering it with a mess. Hmm. That built the culture that fit me i would probably be a fish out of water in your culture and probably yeah. vice versa but it each works and th- absolutely i think does. that's the important point
1: and that's and the thing is that's okay right yeah. and i think that was i remember going through this i was like always trying to position myself like other shops oh i want to be like them i want to be like them yeah. but i wasn't those people so i couldn't leave i have a peer and she's got her agency like she's five doors down from where i am right now literally 400 feet away from my business totally different environment she leads her business very different she has a very different attitude towards creativity and the people that she attracts they're fantastic and creatively of course anybody would be lucky to have them but they wouldn't go in this environment they wouldn't this isn't the environment that they would thrive and they thrive in her environment Mm -hmm. and again we both produce great work but we both run our shops differently so our lunch talks are hilarious because we have the same problems we're so different agencies that, like, yeah. I, I don't hold back with her and she doesn't hold back with me. It's cool.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome.
1: It feels yeah. a little narcissist, but it really isn't, though, is it? I mean, it I don't it want isn't to be like it,
0: It's your vehicle and you get to design it. And
1: I it, like that. I like that. And you that. get to
0: attract those people who want to be there. And that's right. the best part. No and one's, that no is one the best. Yeah.
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good. I
0: like that. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. That's great. I, I want to switch gears just a little bit because you and I talked a lot about the focus of the agency. Mm-hmm. Both you and I had, we, we did it in different ways, but maybe tell a little bit about how you started out and how you kind of niched down and got very specific and what yes. that did to the engagements and to the deliveries for the clients.
1: Okay. Where do I start? When I started Z-Factor, there was, like I said, there was like 34 other agencies in town and, and this is when agencies, it was a cool time, right? Agencies were the cool thing to be, right? And uh, and I remember I was like, how am I going to compete in a city? And at that time, our city was only about 300,000 people. And there was already like 30 plus other companies there. I grew up in a blue collar environment, right? My father, he worked with his hands. My mother was just naturally gifted with her hands. All my family relatives, that's all I knew, right? Because that was like the culture that I was raised in. And because of that, I was like, listen, like all these people, all these other agencies, they're all fighting for these little retail shops. They're fighting for these mm-hmm. retail brands, this, that. Nobody cared about the B2B market and mm, by B2B, the industrial B2B market, right? Back then, there were all these trade magazines that that showed like this whole world about welding or metal forming or plastic injection molding, right? They don't sound glorious by any means, but because they didn't sound great, nobody wanted these. And I was like, wow, this is just like just waiting, a whole field waiting to be picked. You'd flip these magazines. These companies were spending at the time 1000 thousand, two thousand, three thousand $2,000, $3,000 on ad space, but they didn't have anybody creating an ad, right? Like they would do it in-house. They would get the magazines. Right. So it all looked like hell. It was just good hardcore sales, picking up the phone, being like, hey, you're already spending this money. Let me do the work for you. And I'll just take the 15% commission to start. So with, mm-hmm. that's how we started. We started literally picking up the phone, making phone calls, but what happened is we started un, unknowingly, we started niching down into the BM, B2B industrial space at that time. Right. And so this is, it was perfect for me because I loved just naturally. I was always curious on how things were made and I learned how things were made. Right. So I was dealing with these engineers. I was dealing with these owners of these companies and learning all about how things are made, which is fantastic. Now, okay, the first recession came about five, six years into business. And that really, that chopped us down to half, unfortunately. Right. And then I made the mistake of being like, you know what, let's see who else I can get. So I started taking all these other shops, right? I started doing residential. I started doing retail and blah, 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 right? And I became more of a generalist agency. And I didn't realize that's what was happening, but we were struggling all the time, right? Because we were taking any job and everything was like a hunt or a hunt to eat, you know, type of environment. You'd kill something, you'd eat it. Then you'd have to go and kill something else and you'd eat it. And it was just, it felt really sloppy and loose and scrappy, right? Cause it was just ongoing and growth was harder. It was slow because now I had all this com- competition out there. And then with some really cool things, we started adopting the internet. We took what we learned offline online. We totally jumped online. We understood how those two worlds should work together because we had experience offline and then okay. we started learning online. And so we were early adopters of tech and which was perfect. Because what happened is all those other agencies didn't want to make that jump. So then I could see all the other agencies starting to disappear one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. Then what happened, it was about year 15, we were in business and actually it was about year 14 and I had an opportunity to buy, and this sounds weird. There was this internet company locally, right? That they built a really cool content management system and they were being bought out and so they were selling their hardware, they were selling the software component to one company. But they had this list of all their clients. And they asked me if I was interested in buying that list. Ah. It's weird. It sounds weird. And I remember it was for substantial money back then. And uh, my father's look is this is going to cost you the same wage as a salesperson would for a year. But these are people who are using this content management system. And now, you know, you have an employee who knows all about this content management system. So you can continually service these people which was perfect because then this was our entry into tech, right? Right. We worked with all these engineers in the B2B space, but now it was like we're learning all these tech engineers and how they think. So we already learned, we already knew how they thought, how they acted, what. so it was really easy to get into their minds and help them out. But this list was probably the best thing that you could do. And that was probably about the halfway point of business, about year 12, 12 and a half, almost 13. Mm -hmm. And it just, it opened up the doors to all these tech companies. And because of our B2B space and the experience, it was an easy walk-in. And so we shifted from B2B industry to B2B tech at that. And then for the next two or three years, we started getting that reputation, right? But we didn't want to commit. And I think that was the scary part. No agency wants to commit. Yeah, of course. because right? it's, every- it's so hard. It's, I'll be turning away opportunity. It's such a silly thing because I think back to the two points where I had the biggest growth in our company was my first few years when we were specialists in the B2B um, industrial world. And then when we ended up committing 100% to being a B2B technology company. That was a two, the, the two points in my whole career, this whole tenor, our whole existence, where the company took off again. And so when we finally committed, I was like, guys, I, we need to change. It was about year 16, 17. I was like, look, we're in the space. We know the space. Let's just commit to the space, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that we turn away everybody else. If somebody else had a product that we could create or needed a product that we could create and they had a good budget for it, that's just business. That's what, of course, we would still do it, but we were marketing ourselves as to be tech experts. And that's what happened. All of a sudden, people were coming to us, right? Because we needed, I guess for me, I was trying to find a way to eliminate my competition, ultimately. And I was like, how am I going to do that? As a generalist agency, I have competitors everywhere. Everybody's claiming that they can do the exact same thing. However, if I can niche down and become an expert in a specific industry, I'll still be an everything agency. We'll offer everything from print to digital but I'm going to niche down into a specific industry and know that industry, know the players, know the technology, know the inner works of the agency. All of a sudden, my competitors, they're not competitors anymore. They're now another tier beneath me because although they're offering the same kind of service and maybe deliverables, what they don't have is it takes them that much longer to ramp up with every company. They have to learn the technology right we already understood the technology we understood the market we already had a ton of experience on what works what doesn't what converts what what draws attention it was just it just became almost easy for a little while because everybody that we would talk to they'd be like why wouldn't we hire you we don't have to train you you can just get to work right away niching i think ultimately i started as a niche company lost my way in the middle but then re niche at the end and I, I am such a proponent of niching i think it is that secret sauce everybody, they'd be nuts not to do it because ultimately the niche ended up, we started learning about industries so much, so specific. We knew so much intricate details about these companies that we were able to build software platforms for them that didn't exist, which then led to understanding their problems, which built one more software platform, which ultimately ended up leading to a nice exit. So
0: That's a good bridge. Although the niche thing, the way that I like to talk to people about it is who gets paid more, the general practice doctor or the. Mm. And when you go to one of those, which one does the patient come in saying, I Googled this? That's the yeah. general practice doctor. <laughs> you don't it's so go terrible. into the surgeons, I Googled this procedure. Can you, like, you don't it's do so that? true. So do oh, you want man. to be a surgeon or do you want to be a strip mall doctor? That's that is your choice. That's so true,
1: right? Uh, honestly, I can't. It, everything was so liberating, right? Because yeah. one thing is, and I always profess this on our podcast, of course, is that you never want to lose expert status, right? Yeah. And now with Google, everybody thinks that they're equal to you and they have just the same knowledge you do, which is a bunch of crap. But, you know, but the reality is that the belief is there often, right? Once you start having industry expertise in something and you niche down to a surgeon, of course, you're right. Nobody's questioning that anymore. And if they do, you know the agency's that relationship's over because then obviously for other reasons, they're claiming they know more, but we don't run into that anymore. And we stopped running into that. And again, sometimes you'd get pushback, but that was almost more of a trust factor. And once they started trusting you and believing and they just needed to see it for their own eyes, then it was just like a blank check. It was the best thing and you're right you could charge more you could work less you weren't being punished for being good for w- at what you were doing cuz mm-hmm. you had specific expertise knowledge that you know no, none of your competitors did That's fantastic. Oh, great. That's, I can't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Everybody <laughs> should go be. I mean, everyone
0: should do it. Uh, exactly. 100%. Uh, 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 so let's talk about that software cuz I think that is a really good bridge into the discussion about how your acquisition came to be. So talk a little bit about that software cuz that was that's a really fascinating thing that you
1: did. So, so it was a few years back when we started working with companies, we worked with a a big telco up here in Canada. And what happened is they had a ton of channel partners that were selling, obviously their service, right? As most telcos do, because they don't necessarily sell it all directly themselves. They do it through some channel partners. But the problem that they were running into is their channel partners would bastardize the telco's brand. You know, what they would do is they'd take their own initiatives. They would open up Word. They'd slap right. something in there. They'd add their own flourishes on top. They'd skew it. They'd stretch it's been it all
0: deformed. And yeah. Oh my
1: God. It was like, <laughs> it's a branding disaster. And we saw this problem. And that's, that was one of the things I love doing is I just, I love problem solving. And, and it was like, how do we stop these people from doing this? But at the same time, not coming down on them with a hammer saying, no, you can't do this or you're going to lose your contract we had to figure out a way on how to actually give them a reason to continue with the partner and to continue using collateral and sales material in the best possible way so we started coming up with and this was back this was we're talking before canva was really a thing like it is now and we just we came up with this platform for them initially and this was really early days of just we'll build your collateral it's on brand but we will leave specific areas for the customers to be able to tailor things, customize, add a message if they want, add their contact information. And this was really early days. And obviously they loved the idea because it worked. Their channel partners jumped onto this because now they were getting this incredible high quality brand material that they could put their logo on, save them time, save them money. They didn't have to hire a graphic designer and then they would just execute on that. That was the first iteration of this platform and it worked really well with this telco. We started then growing in our niche and then a second customer, and a third customer came in and they had a similar problem, except they weren't so much worried about people bastardizing their own product because they were a B2B brand, but they recognized that their customers were a B2C, B2C right. cu- customers. That was their B, business B2C. model. right? Yeah, it literally was B2B. And, and so it was like, listen, I have this platform that I think that we could modify for you and this is how you could use it. So we did some very preliminary tests. We created some good collateral within here. And then again, they passed it on to their customers. They loved it. They jumped on it. They were like, wow, because their customers were, weren't the big tier one shops. They were tier two, tier three. They were smaller mom pop shops. And now it's they had access to high quality graphic design that was specific for their industry, their market. And this was the difference. And this is the difference between us and like a canvas canvas, is so general. And it's a good platform in the sense of it does help people through that creative, create good quality looking material. But the part that still lacks is the marketing behind it, the branding behind it, right? You still have to come up with the right messaging. You still have to come up, know what actually is going to work with your market or not. So because we had this industry expertise, we were able to create a whole set of collateral not just how to sell to their market, but then how to light up certain areas, if that they were entering into new markets, how to expand their footprint. We were giving them tools that helped them grow their business as well as just market their business, right? Mm-hmm. Launch guides, startup guides. And again, and we wouldn't have been able to do that if we didn't have the industry expertise that we did. All so ultimately yeah. it goes back to, and again, anybody can build a software platform, but building a software platform that actually serves a purpose Totally different start, right? And yeah. I think that was a big mistake a lot of tech companies do. Is they'll just they'll build the tech first, and then they'll try to find the market for it after. Which I think it's a huge mistake. Yeah. But, it is. Um, you go
0: on and on about this. That I think actually agencies are the perfect incubator for software.
1: You have I agree.
0: the use case. You have the clients. You've got a beta customer base built right in. And whether or not you use it as now you're a tech enabled service, or whether yeah. or not you decide to spin it out, as I've talked to multiple agencies about. No matter what, you are in actually in a great position. And it doesn't matter if you don't know how to code yourself. Because a lot of agency exactly. owners are like, oh, I'm code is scary. It is so easy now. It's way easier than when you were doing this. Absolutely. To, to, to actually do this. So that is a fantastic way to add value to your clients. So talk a little bit about like how it changed the relationship with those clients.
1: And the big, the scary part, of course, is you start when you start in with clients, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, right? You make them happy. All of a sudden, they'll give you more work. Okay? And there's this continuous flow, this snowball effect. You keep them happy, they'll give you more work. You keep them happy, give them more work. Next thing you know, they're 30% of your, your income, 40, 50% of your earnings. And that's dangerous. scary as hell, right? Yeah. We've had that backfire in us. Early days, we had BlackBerry as a customer, right? Because again, our area, Waterloo, WhiteBerry was a very large customer of ours. They became like 50% of our, our business. And it's scary. all in one summer... They cut all the relationships, everything. They cut every all the vendor relationships, brought everything in-house because like, Harry crashed. Harry. <laughs> and and what happened? Our business, collateral. That's it. We were done. And we were easy to just, we were the collateral damage that got affected in this. I, overnight, I, our business dropped by over 50%. I had to almost within two weeks just get rid of people who I'd grown to love. Our staff dropped down to three people for a little while. And that was it was scary as hell, right? Yeah, well, 50% um,
0: drop in billings is more than 50% drop in profits with fixed overhead. So people forget this. Yes. What, <laughs>
1: that's what I mean. So that's why we went from 10 to 3 very yeah, quickly. Exactly. Yeah. So I never wanted that to happen again. One of the challenges is trying to make, and this is something that I'm a firm believer in, um, make yourself indispensable. Like land and expand. Right. When you get in with a customer, figure out how you can get yourself deeper within that customer, deeper within their culture, their company, their like their employees, and become indispensable if you can. Now, granted, everybody is to one degree or another dispensable. This software platform was our in that kind of we knew that once they started rolling this into their business model and started offering it to their customers. And as their customers grew and jumped on, like it went from 50 customers to 150 customers within six months, without even us knowing all we, we saw an uptick in the server and it was just like, what just happened there? And then they kept on bringing in more and it got to a point where, you know, not saying that, and again, not to get overly cocky by any means, but. It became part of their business model, which Mm -hmm. then gave us that extra bit of security, right? So now, even though we're always trying hard to keep them happy, as everybody should, of course, we now became part of that company. So now, even though they were our largest customer or our second largest customer, we were almost indispensable, or at least that's what we were striving to be. And then again, we ended up doing that not for one customer, but then for two and then for three customers which then ultimately ended up leading to somebody being interested in the software and the relationships we had. And they thought it was a perfect fit for them. And it was a smart business decision. They wanted the software. They used the software for their customers. They liked the software. And they said, you know what? We, this is a perfect fit. The cultures work. We want you to join our culture, our company, and help us grow while continuing to grow yourself. And it was a really cool I never thought that this would happen as an agency and we all dream about it, but this was, I knew if this was ever going to happen, I had to niche and I had to come up with some sort of product that separated us from everybody else. So nobody else could touch. So whether we were an agency or we were a software company or both, in my opinion, that's ultimately what led us into something, a good package that, you know, and we weren't looking by no means. I wasn't looking to sell in any which way, shape or form or be acquired. And, but it happened and it happened at the right time with the right people. And it was just, um, it just breathed some new life back into us. That, the company's a fantastic crazy. company. They again, giant company. And they help bring internet to underserved and unserved areas. I, there's over 20 million people in the U.S. that don't have access to high speed internet, which is incredible yeah. to believe. So they're actually going and they're bringing fiber internet to all these communities. So it's a very honorable type of business, right? They're helping these small communities, you know, from beginning to end, from like securing funding from government or private, all the way to turning on the switch and operating, and they're even helping them market in these areas. And our platform now is a huge tool for this company because it's helping now all their customers market their new services to to all their towns. Because these people have no idea how to do this. So it's just, it's neat, this whole, this effect that we're having. That's
0: really cool. So I think one of the takeaways from this for anybody who's on this journey is I call it the pain of disconnect. How can you cause it, uh, any customer to have a second thought about disconnecting? Because if all you're doing Mm. is services and a new CMO comes in, a new VP of marketing comes in, they got their guys Yep, and you know that the inevitable is coming. And you're gonna to have to yeah. do your dog and pony against the people uh-huh. who are already entrenched with that relationship. But yeah. what you did is you bypassed that because there's a there's a greater business reason than just, oh, got commodity shop. So yep. how can you do that? And it can be done with technology, a great way to do it. It can be done with ancillary consulting. It can be done with getting involved in other areas of the business. It's just about how do you help them grow and outside the confines of just doing services.
1: Absolutely. So funny you say this, because again, I, everybody experiences this and everybody is very scary. And yeah. this happened to us with this customer. So our largest customer before we had the platform in place, they had a new CMO. And we were smaller at that point. And I knew the new CMO, he came from a bigger company. I knew he had his own shop and he did 100% had his own people. And you knew without a doubt, those people were coming in. So we had to act quickly on how we were going to be able to kind of get through this because I knew he wanted to deal with the other shop, but he knew yeah. that there was something about us that could keep us in that loop. And besides the software, initially, we, we didn't want everything from that company and that's okay. Right. But there's two parts of a company. Obviously you've got the strategy side, which is always fun and amazing to have. And if you can get into this, the brain strategy side of the company, it's amazing. But then there's also the deliverable side. There's just the actual production side of this business. And, and while we would have loved the opportunity to get in there strategically, we knew, I knew without a doubt, that's what his other company was. That was their relationship, right? Because again, any agency, if we do it, if we do our job half, we want to make our customers or our contact at the place, we want them to be a rock star. And if you make them a rock star company A. When they jump to another company, the, uh, you're going to help them. They're going to call you to make them a rock star at company B and company. So we have this, we have this model and I've had this for about 15, 20 years now, customers for life. Every single customer that we get, we treat them so good. And our goal isn't, isn't to, uh, for us to have bragging rights, but it's to make them rock stars in their companies. And what happens is they leave, they love this. They've got this, this dopamine effect and they're like, wow, I'm great. I'm going to another company. I'm bringing you along. And that has been our single biggest lead source, you know, hands down our website's horrible, right? We've never had a, we've never had salespeople actively go and look for work, right? We really haven't because our reputation was that we were a get shit done company. And so we treated people so well, they brought us along. They brought us along that that was a huge part of our growth strategy. But when it came to this company, we had to make a decision on how we were going to pivot or position ourselves within there. Cause I did not want to lose them at that point. And at that point they were only a quarter of our business. Although this other company was a strategy shop, okay, what they weren't was a volume shop. And we were used, we were small, we were nimble. So we were very, we were happy to be like, you know what, we're the get shit done people. We know we're the get shit done people because we did it with other customers. We built a platform internally for us software wise that would enable us to easily take requests from the customer, put it in queue, and then act on them. And so what happened is we started cranking out higher volume jobs with this customer to the point where last year with this one customer, we cranked out over 1,250 different projects. And it's insane, right? Especially for the kind of shop that the size that we are. But the thing is, it got to a point where now, although that CMO has got his strategy guys who in theory absolutely could do the stuff that we do, they wouldn't want to touch it. Because they're like, no, you know what? That's an entirely different right. business model. I do that. That's L- going to
0: break their thinking.
1: Yeah, can you imagine? And, and again, that sounds and, hard. <laughs> it's just, And you get into routine. We built a shop. And again, we're able to do this between nine and five hours because we've got software to help us keep it all organized. It's not your typical project management software that's big and bloated. This is small and nimble, but it keeps things mm-hmm. on track. It keeps the customer informed. And again, the software, a, it was a huge part of how we got shit done here which in turn attracted us had other customers be attracted by it because they're like wow if you're able to crank out that much work for them what can you right. do for me and so right. it would again it's that whole idea about finding a niche within a niche and we were I mean, okay with that
0: exactly and i think this is the cheat code that you found and i also accidentally found in b2b mm. particularly and that is that by making your customer look like a rock star and not the mm-hmm. customer the company making the economic buyer, yes. the rock star, because you have to think about it. That person has hired you based on whatever management has told them their objectives are, which means that, that company has internally said, this is what success looks like. So if yeah. you track their objectives and you make them look like a rock star, you are doing both what the client wants as a company and what the individual will be successful Absolutely, for, And they will love you for it. So, yes, th- th- it, that's the cheat code. So don't just think, oh, we're doing the right thing. We're doing the right kind of work. No, make them
1: the success piece absolutely. They have to and again, it's if you do it right and you're able to make them the rock star even when they leave, the ex- yeah. the company is still sticking with you because yeah. they still can rely on you, you're in you're integrated. And we just had that happen three times already this year. And we're only like, we're not even halfway through this year. We've landed three new customers and it's and, you keep and we the old the one get through. the new one. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's the best oh thing God. ever. It is amazing. I love that was... about that space. But again, I swear about the customers for life. Wow, I can't it, yeah, I can't stress enough that it's I feel like that was something that how do people not do this?
0: So your acquisition was they found about out about you through the software. And that's how so it was pretty organic. You didn't go put yourself on the market. you did not. you weren't actively looking for it. It was just no. it came about and it looked like a great thing you and you went with it
1: absolutely. So what happened was actually they be, they were a customer first. They were a customer that was referred to us from another customer, okay? So our largest customer referred us. They needed a small project. We made a small project. This company was small at the time. They were still early stages, but they had ambition. and it was just like, I remember having these conversations with them and I remember these early stage, com- and okay, we're all going to roll our eyes when we hear this. I remember having the conversation with who is now, I guess, technically my boss, which is amazing. She's, you know what? We're small. We're nimble right now, but in three years, we're going to be a billion dollar company. If everything works out fine. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but if you work with us now and help us get to this point, I'm going to make sure that you're in the end. And. We've all heard this, right? Yeah. And we all are like, yeah, all right. Yeah, okay, yeah, whatever, right. here it comes. Rolling eyes. I remember looking at her and I was like, you know what? I've heard this a thousand times, but when you say it, I actually believe it. And it's true, it was the best thing I could have done because you learned about their beliefs, their culture was so similar to ours. There's such good people there that they're like, when they get got to this growth place, they were like, look, we need a team. We have, we've already grown now. They grew like a hundred times within those three years, the hundred exit, like they, they hit their marks and they were like, okay, either we can build our own team or we could just have you become our team, continue operating on your own, but also help us grow this side of the business. So we don't have to train another team. They liked us obviously for our culture and who we were, but also our knowledge on the space and the Mm -hmm. fact that we had this software that they absolutely wanted to keep utilizing and help us grow. So now there's more talks of our software. We're taking it, we're launching like version 3.0 later this year of this software. And again, we're not looking to compete with Canva because that's not our business model, but we will take it to other channel partners that can utilize this, that based on our knowledge on the space. so on B2B.
0: So you've parlayed a love of design into running an agency, into building software, and then into multiple asset categories. You've got the agency and you've got stock in the acquirer and you've got your software piece. So it is all nuts. By just Yeah, it, it is nuts. But all throughout by being curious and asking, yeah. what can we do too?
1: Dude, honestly, Rush, if there's obviously there's what gets you over that 25 year mark. Okay. First and foremost, perseverance, in my opinion, there was so many days you just had to push through, yeah. but I think as an eight, that's as a business owner and that's any business owner. Okay. We all need perseverance as entrepreneurs. But as an agency owner and as a creative person, curiosity was key. I think it was the number one skill set. And I tell that, we profess that to all of our listeners on the angry designer podcast, I tell graphic designers, once you lose that curiosity, you might as well just hang up your hat because Mm -hmm. it's that curiosity that helps us understand how businesses are run, helps us find those problems that we need to solve and ultimately end up to these these great, you know I don't want to say great payday, a great final solution, Rather, right? We help the customer, we help ourselves, and then we end up growing all together. So yeah. if it wasn't for that curiosity, we wouldn't have recognized those problems because we wouldn't have been asking questions to find out what problems they had. And then we wouldn't have been able to like be curious enough to if we could actually solve them, even though we weren't tech people at that time. We didn't know how to yeah. program, but we figured it out.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's great. Before we wrap up, before you sold, yeah, you know, I know yours came to you organically. So you weren't out there looking for it. Are there things that you wish that maybe a few years before you're like, yeah, if I had known this five years before, if I had known this, then it could have been even a better outcome in one way or another. Are there things that the past you're like, you wish you could go back and say, oh, oh do this or don't do this.
1: There was, I often hear people. I've had people always tell me, do what you're good at and pawn off or sell off or move off everything you can't. And I never understood that because I was too busy counting the pennies, right? Not looking at the dollars. And so I think I should have made earlier investments in bringing on people that could actually help me as opposed to trying to do it all myself. And again, this goes back to the whole generalist versus being a specialist, right? When you're a generalist, you take everything right? And you're essentially counting all those pennies and worrying about all the pennies where you're just blind to dollars out there because you don't have enough foresight or knowledge into that space. So had I known a lot of this, I would have probably brought on, I brought on like an EA, not that she was an EA by any means, but she helped me like hone down what I was good at and tried to unload what I wasn't good. So it ended up Mm -hmm. being like a partner in crime that, you know, can help me get through those times and then focus on. So I definitely think we hear that a lot, but I don't think people take it serious enough. And I think that was one of the biggest changes in how I operated. It made me happier. It made the company healthier. It, well, it really helped energy with the culture. Too. It gives you
0: energy to be creative when you're not uh, well, checking the mail or whatever's like really irritating so to you.
1: It's so true. It's so true. And man, those things add up so much. An entrepreneur, Like a, a big struggle for the entrepreneur is, is always the bottom line. And you're thinking, oh, I'll just work later. I'll throw in a couple hours here, a couple hours there. But you really need those down hours to just recharge. And I don't care if you're in the creative industry or, you know, if you're a landscape company, you need those. You need to unwind because it helps you think clearly the next day. So I definitely, I would say I'd recommend people think of that earlier on. And I honestly do regret leaving the niche initially, right? I lost sight. I figured it was a big market. And, oh, there's business everywhere. But that's such a bad attitude because... Even as a niche, there's business everywhere, right? It's just, it's just, wow, how much, it was like a superpower that I wish I tapped into earlier, which I felt I knew, but I didn't realize, right? Saw the growth in the B2B industry space, and it wasn't until we recommitted to the the B2B tech side of things that I was able to make those two connections. You know, that was a big one too.
0: Those are great, those are great. Yeah, yeah, any advice that you have for folks who are, Earlier on, on the journey, you've talked about getting an EA, you've talked about niching Niche. down, and then we talked a little bit about people and culture as well today. Yeah. Any other thoughts that, because obviously agency exits, these are people who are interested in what does an exit look like? What What's the road to that? Any other thoughts that we could leave folks with?
1: You know what? Honestly, it's hard to, I think the part that felt like it was, I always knew that it was going to be a struggle to sell a service-based company right? Because you don't have, you don't have, you, you don't have control of your customers. You can, all you have is goodwill thereafter, right? And so nobody's really, and sometimes people will buy your client list, right? But there's more to it than that. There's long-term contracts associated with that. It goes deeper than just what the ICS. sees I think that whole idea of trying to make myself and make our company indispensable to a company really resonated well because That started changing our mindset from being service-based to like product-based and trying to figure out how we could productize what we did. And oddly, what made a difference was our PM software, our project tracking software that I was talking about. That was a first huge step because even though it was all the service was all behind there, right? Customers didn't see that they saw a product, they logged in, they saw something slick. It was great. It worked well for them. They launched their project with of a sudden magically get done behind the scenes. They didn't know if it was elves or if it was all computerized. It just magically got <laughs> it done. It didn't matter. Uh, it did. Exactly. It turned into a product. And I think that was, that's ultimately how you have to think if you do have this whole long-term objective of trying to become acquired. It really made a difference, that software, because it really did change us from, even though we were a service-based company, we were perceived as a product-based company because they kept on being like, oh, if you need that, just, they weren't saying, put it, send it over to Z-Factor. They were like, put it in launch list, which was the product that we had. And they're like, just add it to launch list. It'll get done. It'll get done. It was this magic portal that, and it was perfect for them. So again, it became such, so now with our one customer, with one customer, our largest customer, they have over 75 different people launching projects in that platform. Now, some of these people are only doing two or three a year. Some of them are doing 20, 30 projects a year. But again, this portal, again, has become such a pivotal part of how they operate that it's just, it changes us from being strictly a service base to more of a, I don't want to say commoditized us, but it definitely changed it. That's for sure.
0: You've built value. You've built value beyond oh, no. just that you've built an asset and that asset is a business process in someone else's business. So
1: yes. I think <laughs> that's
0: a fantastic way of, of thinking about enterprise value because the enterprise value is the cash flows that you have. It's also the intellectual yeah. property you have. And that a business yeah. process is intellectual property. So you created something out of nothing with a piece of putting a piece of software in between yeah. what would otherwise be an email and a, you've magically created value. I think that is a, an amazing takeaway.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think there's a couple of other little tidbits of things that happened over the years. For so long, I, I tried to find a partner. Oddly, mm-hmm. I tried, I tried, and and apparently everybody wants to be your partner when they have nothing to put bring to the yeah, table. But,
0: <laughs> but give me half, right? Yes, give me half.
1: For, yes, <laughs> give me half <laughs> oh, I love that. But Ultimately, I remember saying, "Screw it, this is never going to happen." So I'm going to just now do this myself. And this was when everything changed. This was when the culture changed. When I mm-hmm. tapped into who I wanted the shop to be, not what other people told me or what I thought was cool, who I'd, and I followed my passions. I made sure it was based on what I enjoyed doing. And ultimately, I mean, it's insane because we got to the point where we got rid of all the crap that we didn't like. We got rid of pay-per-click. We bought, got rid of media. We didn't do any of that stuff. We ended up becoming that creative boutique that everybody said was impossible to do in a town this small And we rocked it because, again, right now, it doesn't matter how small our town is. The world is giant. The world's your client. Yeah. And that's exactly it. Do what you do. Parts that you love because then it doesn't feel like work. And it really never did. Once I figured that out, like the past 10 years have been glorious because, again, it just it's felt like a creative shop. It's been a journey of passion. I've enjoyed every part of it. Right. I stopped doing the stuff that I hated doing. And I just I started appreciating everything I loved. And then again, you do that, then the money will follow. And that's how it all worked out in the end.
0: Yeah, that yeah. is amazing. That's that's a fantastic story. Masamu, thank you very much. Uh, this no. has been great. I think there's been a whole bunch of lessons that anyone can take away from this, applying their own agency. Where can people find out more about you, about your podcast? You've got a whole bunch of things going on. Where can people yeah, right? learn more about that? Yeah.
1: I think right now, pretty big on the podcast right it's it's been it's again when we talk about passion chasing passion although i love my company and i'm still actively involved in running it and the creative director still of z factor and proud of it but it was finally my time to get back and through covid through all that whole experience of being locked down we started this podcast called the angry designer podcast and it was targeted to graphic designers and i guess ux designers can jump in on that or even interior designers really and it was just to address the struggles that we had. This isn't another create a logo program. Although we do address a lot of these ideas and tips and design principles, but we also get deeper and we talk about the problems, ageism in the industry, right? What happens okay. when you burn out, how to bounce back from that? How do you deal with really crappy customers or demanding timelines? Like we talk about the things that nobody else wants to probably because they feel it it may be politically incorrect to talk about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And right. we're just like the hell with it. This shit needs to be heard and uh, with that being said we started the angry designer podcast our growth has been fantastic people who cares about the growth the part i love most is we let everybody know reach out with problems reach out say hi whatever and we try to respond to everybody and just some of the people when people are telling us how we've helped them get out of being burnt out or how we help them get a job or how we help them understand this more or they get a promotion it's just it's so rewarding. So I feel like this has taken this to a whole new level, right? Because I've always been a passionate graphic designer and nobody would ever help me before. Now it's like I'm giving back and it just, it feels like such the right thing to do. It's a space that I'm passionate about. People can find me. We got a website, the angry designer podcast. We're also on Instagram. We're on YouTube. People can reach out there. I think that's probably the easiest And, and a small little write up on me there if you want to learn about me, but you know what you want to learn? Just message me. And I just yeah. talk to everybody. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> definitely check out the Angry Desire podcast. You will also apparently get really good whiskey and bourbon tips as uh, yeah. some of us would know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> definitely. Thank you, Massimo. It's been fantastic. Uh,
1: thanks, Raj. Thanks for
0: having me. All, right. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.